0: So when I was in grade school, um, me, we, me, my mom, and a younger sister attended a small mainline liberal church, and sermons were of such that I had a hard time paying attention. No wisecracks at this moment, okay? <laughs> and so in order to endure that long hour, I would, at 11 or 12 years old, pick up that King James Bible in the back of the pew in front of me and look for something to read, and I found most of it to be either too difficult to understand or not especially interesting. The only book that held my attention was, you can guess, Revelation. Revelation. And so this may be where all my fondness for it started. I'm not sure. Um, I was especially fascinated with the seven-headed beast in chapter 13 that came up out of the sea. It, I, I took it all literally and tried to visualize what this monster may have looked like. Along with its seven heads, it had the feet of a bear, the mouth of a lion, looked like a leopard, and had ten horns, and so on. And I was intrigued that people worshipped it, and that no one could buy or sell unless they had its mark on their forehead or right hand. What could any of this be possibly referring to? Other parts of the book were fascinating as well. The dragon that gave this beast its power. The two witnesses from heaven that were killed and came back to life and went up into heaven. The hundred pound hailstones that fell on the earth and the 144,000 who had God's name sealed on their foreheads and giant locusts that tormented people with their scorpion tails and evil spirits that looked like frogs and so on. King James made this a little hard to navigate, but I was able to pick up enough to keep me fascinated Revelation was a book in the Bible that scratched that science fiction fantasy itch that many young boys had, um, have, and I had. Now, I didn't think of it as fiction. I believed it all to be true, but again, I just didn't have a clue what any of it was referring to. As I got into high school, we switched to a theologically conservative church where the Bible was given much more respect and weight. And when discussions, about, uh, when discussions came up about Revelation, uh, I learned that it wasn't Um, I I learned, uh, people talked about all of its symbolism, and when it came to the beast in chapter 13, I learned that it wasn't actually a seven-headed monster that emerged out of the ocean, but a world leader that everyone referred to as the Antichrist, okay? Um, But nobody knew who he was, or what it was, just that he was associated with the number... Okay, we all know this stuff, and and it would be some sort of a dictator over the whole planet. Um, The two people who I thought should have known who this guy uh, was were not helpful at all, the youth minister and the senior pastor, okay? I mean, they're supposed to have all the answers, right? Then on some Saturday in late spring, our youth group went to a Bible college in Cincinnati for one of those kind of meet and greet events, recruitment opportunity. You know, if you don't have plans after high school, then you should think about coming here, get some Bible training, that sort of thing. And so the youth group leaders took down a couple cars of teenagers to this, and lots of kids were from all over the area were there as well, probably a couple hundred or so. And during the free time when everyone was either playing volleyball or or enjoying other social activities, I headed over to the library, eager to learn who the Antichrist is in Revelation 13. If an answer could be found, a library at a Bible college would have it, right? I'll never forget the look on the librarian's face when I walked in. Where can I go to find out who the beast is in Revelation 13? (laughs) I mean, he gave me that grin like I had just asked to find a map to the lost continent of, of Atlantis. And then then he took me over to a wall filled with commentaries on Revelation. And that's where I spent the next couple hours or so while all the other kids were out having fun. And this, of course, is a picture of what Denny Lobb's childhood looked like. (laughs) 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 At the end of the day, I left more confused and frustrated. I should have played volleyball. there was no general consensus on who the beast in Revelation 13 was referring to. Suggestions ranged from Roman emperors like Nero and Domitian and Diocletian to certain popes during the period of the Reformation to the papacy itself to world leaders like Adolf Hitler and Gorbachev and even Henry Kissinger. And there were, of course, commentaries that claimed that the beast is yet to come in the future. And all the signs supposedly indicate that he will rise up any moment very, very soon. But most commentaries didn't even try to speculate on it. And so I left frustrated, concluding that this whole afternoon was a big waste of time. That was over 40 years ago. I can now look back and um, wait, I lost track. There's over 50 years ago. <laughs> Man, <laughs> this is bad. <laughs> I remember making fun of old people when they would say do those sorts of things. OK, so I can now, the point is, <laughs> I can now look back and actually appreciate the value of that afternoon. This was my first experience with what we could call the problem, the challenge. People don't agree on Revelation 13, and so any conclusion that I come across has to be processed in that light. Be careful about hard conclusions. And A valuable lesson because I wanted hard conclusions. In fact, as I eventually came to learn, people don't agree on many things in Revelation or for that matter, how the book itself is to even be approached. And so in time, I came to appreciate the benefit of learning about all the different positions, their strengths and weaknesses and to hold positions with a light grip and the value of learning more and being open, teachable and so on. And all this actually started back then in that library with that afternoon of frustration. This principle, of course, applies to a lot of things in the Christian faith, but especially Revelation. There are different views on the Antichrist, different views on the 144,000, different views on the millennial kingdom and the rapture and the tribulation period, different views on what the judgments represent, and bigger yet, different views on how to even approach the book. The philosophy used to interpret it and process, decipher its symbolism. It's not, of course, that all of the different views are right or worthy of equal consideration. It's just that when it comes to something as difficult as the book of Revelation, we need a healthy measure of humility whenever we open its pages which means extending grace to those who see things differently and try to appreciate the reason they see things differently because, in the end, there might be good reasons for the positions that they hold. We all understand this, right? So today in this series on Revelation, we're going to turn a corner and do something a little different. I'd like to tackle the question of interpretation, something we have been kind of avoiding up to this point, um, but it is the elephant in the room when you talk about this book. You cannot, for instance, really appreciate all the different views, all the various views about the beast in chapter 13, or the thousand reign of Christ in chapter 20, or the two witnesses in chapter 11, and the 144,000, and all the judgments, and so on, until you have some basic understanding of the philosophies that drive those different views, the different approaches that have been used. And we might think of these as starting points. Um, They become the filter through which one reads and processes every verse in every chapter. And all of them, there are a lot of them, but all of them can more or less be divided up into four main categories, four main philosophies or schools of interpretation. And this is going to occupy our attention for the rest of this morning and next week. And each of these have been around for for a long time, and it'd be good for us to have a basic familiarity with them. And uh, we have referred to them in the past from time to time, but the time has come to just dig into them a little bit more. So here we go. We have preterism, we have historicism, we have futurism, and we have idealism. And as we will see, um, especially next week, there is often overlap between these areas where two or more, or perhaps all four, might actually share some areas of agreement. And there are within each of the four, again, a wide variety of different opinions and positions. Lots of different versions of preterism, for instance, and of the others as well. And to everyone's relief, we're not going to try to cover all of those differences. (laughs) For the most part, we're just going to stick to these four main categories. So we're going to start with a brief definition of each one, a brief definition. And then we'll look at each one separately, explaining more about it taking time to spell out its various strengths and weaknesses, and then at the conclusion, next week I hope to have some time to take a couple passages and do some comparisons. So my plan here is to simply introduce you to these four positions and not steer you to any particular one. Um, I'm trying to be as objective about this as possible, which is easy since I don't really have one that I strongly favor. And though you might hear a couple new words, just be assured that nothing I'll be sharing today will be over anyone's head. Just You might have to kind of, um, you know, st- stay track and try to t- stay attention, but nothing's going to be complicated. It's all going to be easy to follow, hopefully interesting, and hopefully helpful. And I actually think this stuff is fun. Um, some of you might. Hopefully everyone will. And if there's time, I hope to take some questions at the end. And because of what happened last week at the end of Guy's sermon. He gets to go first with the questions. But I offered a softball question to you, so I expect a softball question in return, if you have a question, and if there's time. Lots of ifs in all this. (laughs) Let's start with preterism. The word preteris is a Latin word that means gone by, um, or basically the past. And so this view holds that either all of the prophecies in Revelation or at least the bulk of them have already been fulfilled, namely in the first century during the lifetime of the original readers and were all fulfilled during a relatively short period of time, something like three to five years. The events were in the future for them when they first read Revelation, but are now, of course, in the past for us. The symbols and the visions all refer to people, countries, and events in the world of that day, and the per- purpose of the book, therefore, is to show them, namely the seven churches, because they are the ones the book was given to uh, originally, is how God is um, how God is about to bring judgment on those who are persecuting them and other believers. As you. Survey world events during the last half of the first century. It may be actually kind of hard to see how anything going on in that time matches up with what is found in Revelation. How, you know, how do you connect the dots on this? But by taking a, a liberal or more free approach to the symbolism, a preterist will attempt to show that Revelation is largely dealing with the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., Uh, This massive destruction of the Holy City was a manifestation of God's wrath, and God used the Roman armies to accomplish this, and the fall of Jerusalem is described symbolically, or perhaps allegorically, in the judgments of the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls of wrath. And the Jewish people were being punished for rejecting Christ, for crucifying him, and for persecuting Christ's followers. The historical view sees the book of Revelation unfolding through a very long period of time over the course of centuries. The events described paint a picture of the successive ages of the church, mostly from the perspective of, admittedly, the Western church. Some prophecies were fulfilled during the time of the original readers. Other prophecies were fulfilled in the centuries that immediately followed. Many prophecies were fulfilled later on during the time of the Reformation, and some prophecies are yet to be fulfilled. And this view was quite popular during the Reformation, but it actually enjoys very few supporters today. The futuristic view is the one that we are the most familiar with. This is the default position for most Christians in modern times, and that's because it's the view that everyone has had the most exposure to. It's reinforced in Christian novels, Christian movies, non-fiction books, countless sermons from pulpits, and even in many songs. Essentially, it proposes everything from the beginning of chapter 4 to the end of the book is yet to be fulfilled. And so the judgments and the rise of the Antichrist and so on will transpire in a relatively short period of period at the end of the age right before Christ returns. And after this will come the great day of judgment followed by the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. The thing that futurists don't agree on is the nature and timing of the thousand-year reign of Christ spoken of in chapter 20, sometimes referred to as the millennial kingdom. But most futurists see that as happening immediately after Jesus returns. And finally, we have idealism. And this one is rather interesting. It sees Revelation as setting forth timeless truths concerning the cosmic battle between light and darkness, good and evil, Christ and the devil. kingdoms in conflict. According to this school of thought, Revelation doesn't offer any predictions about any events, past, present, or future. In the end, there is the ultimate triumph of God's kingdom, but the seals and the trumpets and the bowls of wrath and the rise of the beast and the fall of Babylon and so on simply describe in highly symbolic language the ongoing conflict in every generation between the kingdom of God and the dominion of Satan. The prophecies simply illustrate this conflict. They aren't really predictions. Idealism interprets the book of Revelation as an allegory. It doesn't get bogged down into the details. It simply looks for these larger lessons that apply to all Christians everywhere at all times. So, for instance, there may be a future Antichrist, but more importantly, there have been many Antichrists through the ages Either way, even that doesn't really matter. What is the most important is the lesson itself. Only God is to be the object of our worship and total allegiance. That, according to the idealist, is the point being made in chapter 13. All right, does everyone follow so far? All right, so this is a basic introduction, a basic summary of the four views, and again, each of the four schools will have a wide variety of differences within them. Without a doubt, Revelation wins the prize of being the book that is the most controversial among scholars and laymen alike. Now, of the four views, the two that are the most popular, common today, are preterism and futurism. Most of us are familiar with futurism, so I'm going to spend more time on Preterism, actually, the rest of the morning on preterism. Um, it, it is growing in popularity, probably as a reaction to some of the hypersensationalism that has been advanced by a number of amateur futurists like Hal Lindsey and Jack Van Empey and Tim LaHaye and many, many others. You know, during the 70s, 80s, and 90s, especially. There were just endless discussions and endless speculations about the number 666 and computers and barcodes and a coming cashless society and the armies of Russia and the armies of China and the new world order and so on. And and even lots of popular little booklets like 88 Reasons Why Christ, like why Christ Will Return in 88 and so on. And Christianity just seemed to be occupied with all this stuff and eventually became really, quite frankly, wearisome. And in a reaction to all of this, one popular preterist came out with a book during that time titled Last Day's Madness, <laughs> where he attempted to offer thinking Christians an, attra- an attractive alternative. So because of its growing popularity, we're going to spend some more time on preterism than the other three. The historical view is basically, you know, dead these days. You are already familiar with the futuristic view, and idealism it doesn't, re- doesn't require a lot of time to explain or discuss because by design, there just isn't that much to it. All right? So, sound like a plan? Everyone's still tracking? Good. So, preterism. Now, when I first learned of this, it seemed like the craziest thing I had ever heard and wondered how could a true Christian even hold to it. But it actually has a lot going for it. So again, preterism sees the events described in Revelation as being fulfilled in the past shortly after the time of its writing. And there are two main types of preterists. This is very important to keep these distinctions. We have full preterists and partial preterists. They share a lot in common, but at the same time, there is a huge difference. It's a major one. For our purposes, we are mostly mostly interested in partial preterism. But a few words need to be said about full preterism so that we can dismiss it and then move on. So, full preterism would claim that all of the prophecies in the book of Revelation have been fulfilled, even the ones in the last chapters about Jesus coming on a white horse, the millennial kingdom, the great day of judgment, the condemnation of the devil, and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. They believe all that has already taken place. The return of Christ and the Great Judgment Day, for instance, represent him coming, not physically or visibly, but coming spiritually in power and glory in the army of Rome to destroy Jerusalem in 70 AD. He's using apocalyptic language. Indeed, all of the references, according to this view, uh, to the coming of Jesus in Revelation, all the references to the coming of Jesus in Revelation refer to the fall of Jerusalem, according to this view. And the beautiful new creation described in the last two chapters, they would say that that's referring either to the church age, the beauty and glory of the church age, or um, here on earth, or to life in heaven, or perhaps to both. So a full preterist, just to be clear, would reject the idea that those chapters are prophesying about a future kingdom of God that believers will inhabit in their resurrection bodies. Everyone follow that so far? All right. Full preterism, as you can see, is a bit troublesome because it can end up denying essential doctrines like the return of Jesus and the future resurrection of the body. Core beliefs that really do define Christianity. But a full preterist could, at least in theory, still hold to those doctrines, the second coming and the future resurrection, and so on, by claiming that they are taught elsewhere in the Bible, and they affirm that, and then just simply claim that they are not, however, addressed in Revelation, but most full preterists believe that the promised restoration has now arrived. We are living in it now. The world as we know it will continue as it is, indefinitely, on and on and on at infinitum. And there is no future return of Jesus. There is no resurrection of flesh, no coming kingdom of God in a new heavens and new earth. The great hope is nothing more than dying and going to heaven where we will exist indefinitely as disembodied spirits in the presence of God and his angels. So, those who hold to this absolute view of full preterism are regarded as not just wrong, but as heretics, even by partial preterists. And we are not that interested in full preterism, and from here on, we're just going to only refer to it occasionally. So far, everyone's following me. Okay, let's now move on to partial preterism, where we turn our attention to the one that you are most likely to encounter. It does not deny any core doctrine of the Christian faith and it fits within the circle of orthodoxy. We might even have a couple partial preterists among us here. Unlike full preterism, partial preterism sees the last chapters of Revelation's prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled. But everything up to chapter 19 or perhaps the middle of chapter 19 refer to events that have already transpired long ago during the lifetime of the original readers. And that the judgments and all the scary and horrible things that are described throughout the book are all referring to the fall of Jerusalem. That's front and center, the fall of Jerusalem. So to better appreciate uh, where preterists are coming from, we need a quick history lesson on the fall of Jerusalem. Ah, church history, isn't that great? (laughs) All right, so I'll I'll make this quick, but it's very important to have this understanding for you to better appreciate this view. In AD 66, Roman governor Flores demanded 17 talents from the temple treasury in Jerusalem, uh, tribute or tax, which would be equivalent to something like $15,000 or or $18,000 today. So, relatively speaking, this was a cheap price to pay to keep the Romans happy and they could easily afford it. But what do you think the Jews did? They refused. There's no way we're gonna do that. So Governor Flores didn't like being taken, didn't like to being said no to, so he came to Jerusalem himself with his military to enforce the payment. His plan was to march in and plunder the temple. When he arrived, however, thousands of Jews were blocking the entrance. Even with his military, he could not get through. So he took his army and he left town in disgrace, embarrassed by the whole thing. Tensions between the Jews and the Romans just continued to escalate from that point. Fights broke uh, broke out all over Palestine, between the two groups, no doubt agitated by the active zealots at that time that we read about in the, in the Gospels. And during this time, this three to five-year period, three to four-year period, the Jewish rebels typically had the upper hand. They were a major embarrassment to Rome. Then, in 70 AD, Emperor Vespasian sent his Roman general Titus, who was his son, to end that rebellion once and for all. He had gotten to his, you know, the He wasn't going to take it anymore. So they were determined to break the hold the Jews had over the city of Jerusalem, whatever it took. The city was held under siege for five months, where eventually there was great suffering and famine. Titus broke through and his armies looted both the city and the temple. Jerusalem was plundered and leveled. The temple was destroyed, never to rise again. Tens of thousands of lives were lost in that war. Captives and spoils were carried off to Rome. Jews were sold into slavery or kept for the gladiator games. And only a small remnant remained in Judea. One history book reports that during this three and a half year revolt, one million lives were lost. To symbolize the utter extension of the Jewish nation, the name of the land was changed from the Judean province to Palestine, which means land of the Philistines. So this was to add insult to injury. Now, Jesus predicted this destruction. He spoke of it as a judgment from God, and preterists claim that this is what revelation is all about. Judaism now, as a result, had no base, no headquarters. The sacred holy city was virtually no more. The temple was no longer the center of worship. Animal sacrifice was no longer offered up. And groups, various religious groups, the ones that we know about in the Bible, like the Pharisees and Sadducees and others, disappeared from the scene either immediately or shortly thereafter. This was a bloody, violent, horrible war in every way and a major turning point. And it really was an apocalypse, at least for the Jewish people. And because Christians did not join the Jews in the revolt, they were blamed for the defeat. And they were regarded as traitors and expelled from the synagogues everywhere. So again, with the grasp of this history and the significance of Jerusalem's destruction, the Preterist is able to see how all of that is reflected in the pages of Revelation. So if you are not familiar with this view, can you kind of see how all that could fit, could fit. All right, so let's now consider some of the strengths and weaknesses of preterism. And we'll start with the prose, why some people find it appealing. The primary reason is that the book itself gives the impression, a strong impression, that the original readers will see its prophecies fulfilled. In fact, the book opens and closes with this very sense of expectation The very first book of the book says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servants what must soon take place. And this is repeated at the end of the book in the last chapter. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servant, referring to John, the things that must soon take place. And do not sew up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. We also see little clues throughout the book, like um, the exhortation given to the church in Philadelphia in chapter three, Jesus telling them that they would be spared the hour of trial that is going to come up on the whole world. And the implication is that all of the judgments spoken of in the chapters that follow describe this hour of trial and that they will see it, but not be adversely affected by it. And throughout the book, again, there just seems to be this sense of urgency that the events described are about to happen any moment. And it will be a fast cascading of events, one following the other somewhat rapidly. Now, the first and foremost question we should ask when reading from any book of the Bible is, how did the original readers understand what was written? We've been taught that every time we teach about, we teach that every time we talk about hermeneutics. And this, of course, is one of its main rules. And it seems to be the case that the original readers, the seven churches that the book is addressed to, were not thinking that these prophecies were, were about events that would happen two or three hundred years off into the future, much, much less 2,000 years or 3,000. And indeed, throughout the book, we find a number of warnings and encouragements to be patient, to endure persecution, and to remain faithful, all of which would make very little sense if such exhortations did not actually apply to them. Okay? This is a strong point. Another favorable point is that we have detailed accounts of the Fall of Jerusalem from historians based on the testimony of eyewitnesses, and they include the Jewish historian Josephus, you've heard of him, and Roman historians like Tacitus and and Suetonius. And some of their accounts can actually line up with certain prophecies in Revelation. But like everything else, it depends on whether you find this correlation convincing. So let's take the four horsemen of the apocalypse that we've talked about earlier. Um, We find this at the beginning of chapter 6 where we have the opening up of the first four seals. The rider on the white horse, the the first rider of the apocalypse, he rides on a white horse and we are told that he is bent on conquest. So the preterists will claim that he represents the victorious Roman march toward Jerusalem under the Roman general Titus in the spring of 67 AD. The next is the rider on the red horse. We are told in the Bible that he takes peace from the earth. And according to the Preterists, he represents the disruption of peace caused by the Jews. Rome was famous for its ability to keep peace, which was enforced by the heavy hand of law and order. And the Jews were quite contentious and their you know, flagrant resistance proved to be a major embarrassment to the empire. The rider on the black, the riders on the black and pale horses represent famine and death that the Jewish residents of Jerusalem suffered from the siege and the war and the destruction of the city. So you could kind of make these things fit. And as you continue through the rest of the judgments, we won't go through all of them now. Predators will attempt to match the events described in those chapters to certain events or situations that occurred during this horrible and bloody war. Uh, uh, one quick one here, the prophecy in chapter 16 about the hundred pound hailstones falling out of heaven refers to large stones being catapulted by the Roman army upon the city during the siege and so on. So you can kind of see how some of these things fit and to help make things fit a bit better. Preterists also see one set of judgments rather than three sets. In other words, the judgments of the seven seals are the same as the judgments of the seven trumpets which are the same as the seven bulls of wrath. And so when it comes down to it, there are only seven separate judgments, but they're being described from three different perspectives. Got that? So regarding the beast in chapter 13, well, again, the preterists will say that he has already come and gone and that we're all idiots for thinking that he's about to arrive because the preterists will see that the beast in chapter 13 is the Roman emperor, Nero, the first Christian, the first Roman emperor to persecute Christians. I don't think he ever became a Christian. <laughs> and, the, and the argument for this is worth noting. Um, in ancient Greek and Hebrew, letters also represented numerals like we see in Latin. And by adding these values, words could be represented as the sum of their numbers. Nero Caesar in the Hebrew alphabet, when interpreted numerically, represents the numbers 50, 206, 50, 100, 60, and 200, which all add up to 666, okay? (laughs) Another point in favor of preterism is something commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse found in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In that discourse, which is like a short sermon, Jesus talks about various signs regarding the destruction of the great temple in Jerusalem and predicts wars and famines and earthquakes and so on, which, as you know, from when you read Revelation, that's the subject matter. And it is argued that Revelation is like the extended version of what Jesus warned about, prophesied about in the Olivet Discourse. Revelation is the full picture, the full version. Again, all of it fulfilled in 70 A.D., Another strong point is that the theory that the object of wrath and revelation is the Jewish people rather than the whole world is derived from an opening prophecy in chapter one. In verse seven, there is a reference to those who pierced him. And so again, it is suggested that the destruction of Jerusalem prophesied in the judgment described in chapter six through 19 are directed to the Jews for killing Jesus and persecuting his followers. The verse doesn't explicitly state that, but yet it could serve as a clue. And finally, there is this. Um, Though most scholars believe that Revelation was written in the uh, early or mid-90s, there are some reasons to place it in the late 60s instead. Uh, But dating Revelation is very difficult. It's very controversial, but there are reasons to place it early. And if this is so, then it would have been written before the events it prophesied came to be. And obviously, if Revelation was written after the fall of Jerusalem, then it would would not be much of a prophecy, would it? So an early date is required for this theory to work. And there are reasons to say that, hey, it could be because of this, this, and this. So these are some of the main strengths of this position. The strongest, I believe, is the first one. If, for instance, you were in the church at Ephesus... When this letter is being read for the first time on an early Sunday morning, Ephesus is one of the recipients of Revelation. You probably would have concluded that the events being described were events you would be soon witnessing and maybe even experiencing. So given these noteworthy arguments, um, and they seem to be fairly compelling, why has preterism failed to win everybody over to it? Why are some unconvinced? Well, it does have some snags, and we'll look at a few of them here. If Revelation was written to prepare its readers, Christians, for the destruction of Jerusalem, why was it sent to the seven churches in Asia, 800 miles away, rather than to the churches in Palestine? These churches here in Asia, the seven churches, would not have witnessed any of that Roman invasion of Jerusalem and probably would not have suffered that much from any fallout from that, if any. And as you read Revelation, it doesn't sound like the object of God's wrath is the Jewish people or the Jewish leaders or even Jerusalem. The judgments and calamities and disasters appear to be universal, or at least experienced on a much wider scale than just one city. For instance, in chapter 6, we read of the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hiding from the wrath of the Lamb. And it kind of really pushes the symbolism to claim that all of those are just descriptions representing the Jews living in the city of Jerusalem. In Revelation, we have references to the inhabitants of the earth. Many times that, that expression is used. And a third of mankind. And the whole world. And the whole earth was harvested. harvested. And the kings of the whole world. And the cities of the nations. And so on. And it really is hard to see that these are supposed to be symbolic of references to just Jews in Jerusalem. And oftentimes, the response to these judgments is that of cursing God and blaspheming him. Um, now, this reaction is easy to picture if we're talking about pagans in general, but not so much if we're talking about the Jewish people or Jewish leaders. It's hard to visualize that they would do that. In fact, at the end of chapter 9, we, we read that those who survived the judgment of the, of the sixth trumpet did not stop, they had been doing this, and they refused to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, nor did they repent of their occultic practices and murders. Again, that just doesn't sound like a lifestyle that would characterize Jewish people in the first century. Along that line... Some of the judgments in Revelation describe catastrophes that seem to have nothing to do with the fall of Jerusalem, like the wholesale destruction of sea life and ships being destroyed and sinking and so on. This war between the Romans and the Jews did not include any battles involving oceans or seas or rivers. There is also the matter of Christians being persecuted by the Jews. Now, Preter's claim that this persecution, that this is the persecution being referred to over and over in Revelation and one of the main, and and the, one of the main reasons for God's judgment of them. But what Revelation describes doesn't seem to match up with what we know from historical accounts on this. I mean, if that about that if that is the prophecy. Now, certainly it is true that Jews persecuted Christians. Um, but it consisted mostly of shunning and harassment and discrimination and maybe some confiscation of property and some light imprisonment here or there and perhaps some isolated situations of stoning, but not massive bloodshed. There was no outright war against Christians from the Jews. In fact, up until the fall of Jerusalem, Jewish Christians were welcomed in the synagogues However, chapter 5 speaks of the souls that had been slain because of the word of God and their testimony, and that many more would follow them. Chapters 18 and 19 refer to the blood of the saints in striking terms, you know, uh, the persecutor being drunk with the blood of the saints, making it sound like massive genocide, as do chapters 13 and 14. And we could go on with this. I mean, the images are intense. Such language is more descriptive of the Roman persecution of Christians in the centuries to follow. But most preterists are reluctant to go there because all of that happened after the original readers had died. And a preterist wants to place all that during their lifetime. And what do we do with the beast in chapter 13? I mean, this thing, whoever, whatever it is, that is the great persecutor of believers. It could be Nero, but it's um, hard to make him fit. His persecution of Christians, 64 AD, was limited to just the city of Rome. It was not widespread across the empire, and Jerusalem is 1,400 miles away. It was not affected by it. Plus, the Emperor Nero doesn't fit some of the other key descriptions of this beast in chapter 13. Though he Though he thought of himself as a deity, he didn't order people to worship him as such, and there's no restriction on buying and selling unless you worshiped him, and so on. There was some of that happened later in the centuries to follow, but not during Nero. And Nero's persecution took place before Revelation was written, even if you go with the earlier date. How can something written in 67 or 68 AD prophesy about something that happened three or four years earlier? And so it seems that we don't really have anyone during the time of the original readers that really fits the description of the beast in chapter 13. Now, recognizing these problems, some preterists will say that these persecutions are indeed referring to the great Roman persecutions in the second and third centuries where thousands of believers were executed, executed for not worshiping the various emperors of their day. But you just have to stop and think about this. To claim this is to actually undermine the central tenet of preterism. Preterism rests on the assumption that everything was fulfilled during the time of the original readers, not later, not even a couple hundred years later, and that the fall of Jerusalem is central to all of this. Another difficulty is just hermeneutics. In particular, preterism requires scriptural passages to be interpreted with a chaotic blend of literal and figurative language and extremely figurative language. And sometimes, you know, this would be the case in the same chapter, even same paragraph. Now, preterism isn't the only view that suffers from this inconsistency, but given the presupposition that everything is fulfilled during the time of the original readers, such inconsistencies can't be avoided because you have to force things to fit. And as to be expected, preterists don't always agree among themselves on the symbolism or the allegorical interpretations. All right, and then we have the, uh, the, the what soon must take place argument and perhaps uh, their strongest point. But um, this can be explained by chapter 3 of 2 Peter. It may not be a, 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 the best explanation, but it, it, it's an acceptable explanation. Our idea of soon and God's idea of soon is often different to him. One day is like a thousand years and so on. And the New Testament really is quite is filled with these expectations that Christ will return any moment. In fact, the original hearers of Christ's sermons would have concluded that the kingdom of God, in all of its glory and power, was just imminent. And Jan, why are you taking pictures of me? Oh, okay. I know I'm handsome and everything, but you're fine. I'm just teasing. i just just teasing. It did not irritate me at all. In fact, let me just pose. All right, I think there's another one here, and there appears to be better arguments to place the date of authorship to the late 80s or early 90s, well after the fall of Jerusalem, rather than before, like in the late 60s. So, several church fathers indicate that Domitian was the emperor when John wrote Revelation, including Irenaeus, who interestingly, refutes the idea that was popular at the time, apparently, that Nero is the Antichrist and that number 666 refers to him. Irenaeus was very early, born in 130 AD, a second generation apostolic father. So recognizing many of these problems, some predators will claim that the time period of fulfillment is still in the ancient past, but it isn't limited to just the first century. That some of his prophecies are about the fall of Rome at the end of the 5th century, um, at least in the West, extending the range, you know, by 400 years. And that the judgments described in this book are directed to both Jews and Romans. And this does seem to solve a lot of problems and would make the position much more uh, doable, uh, attractive. But again, extending it this far out, well after the original readers have died, undermines the core tenet of preterism. And others yet will simply claim that John believed his prophecies would be fulfilled very soon. His readers believed it as well, but they weren't, and the book therefore is not inspired by God and should not be considered as part of the Bible. There is a segment of people who believe that, um, but these are, of course, liberals who don't have much respect for Scripture anyway. Now there may uh, there may be other ways to work around some of these weaknesses that we see here, but that would probably involve taking a lot of liberty with the symbolism, which we may be afforded to do, I'm not sure, but I think we just have to be a little careful with that because at some point you, you could just make any passage say anything that you want, and that is the danger that really all four of these positions face. But even with its difficulties, I would say that partial preterism is, is still plausible. All right, so much more could be said about this, but this gives you kind of a general picture of what preterism is, why some find it attractive, why others yet are not convinced of it. It's worth noting that, you know, driven by the argument that everything in Revelation must be fulfilled during the time period of the original readers, it's not really that uncommon for a partial preterist to eventually become a full preterist. That's kind of like the logical conclusion, and it does happen. So, next week, assuming folks will return for the second part of this, we will look at the other three views the historical view, the futuristic view, and um, the idealistic view. And we'll be able to move through those rather quickly and easily, uh, more so than what we did here today.